The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable. Settle in. Turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> On tonight's episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark, we continue the saga of Jasper DeWitt's epic nine-part series with chapters four through six of the story entitled The Patient That Nearly Drove Me Out of Medicine. If you're just joining us today, I encourage you to start with the first three chapters as featured in season one, episode 14 of this program. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. The walk to Joe's room was longer than for other patients, seeing as it was at the very end of one of the halls that housed the patient's room. That was where the horror clichés surrounding his upkeep ended, though. For instance, there would have been no reason to move him into the basement or something silly like that. Truth be told, he had one of the more spacious and well-lit rooms in the hospital— probably as a sign of his status as a patient with guardians wealthy enough to afford 20-plus years of care. None of this diminished my apprehension at going to my first session with him. Having had so many people try so emphatically to dissuade me from doing so much as talking to this mysterious patient most certainly had an effect, and I half expected his door to shock me when I inserted my staff key and pulled the knob. But nothing of the sort happened. As I said, Joe's room was fairly spacious and well-lit, and even had an unusually large window with an impeccable view of the hospital grounds. What caused me to notice this, however, was the fact that Joe's room seemed, if anything, larger compared to Joe himself. For such a feared patient, he did not give even the slightest impression of danger. He couldn't have been more than five foot six, and was about as thin as one could get without looking underfed. A mop of unruly blonde hair that looked as if it hadn't been combed in years flopped off of his head. He was sitting with his back to me in one of the cheap hospital chairs, and as he stood up and turned to face me, 
I expected his face to carry some sort of unexpected terror. But even here, I was disappointed. His face was long, pale, and horsey, with a weak, drooping chin, high cheekbones, and slightly yellowed teeth. His pale blue eyes looked unfocused and almost as absent as some of the more catatonic patients I'd seen. We stood staring at each other for a few moments before I spoke. "'Joe,' I said in my most professional tones, "'I'm Dr. H. Dr. G assigned me to do therapy with you, if that's all right with—' "'You're young.' His voice was reedy and low and rasped as if he'd barely used it. It would have been slightly disconcerting if not for the quick sorrow in it, which only made him seem more pathetic. I nodded at him and gave him a small smile. I am, I said calmly. Does that bother you? He shrugged. The others weren't as young as you. She's getting desperate. Who? You know who, he said with a bitter smile. Her. The one who keeps me locked up here. Why doesn't she just cut my throat while she's at it? I'd wager she's done it to plenty of others. If you're referring to Dr. G, then yes, as I said. Oh, doctor, 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 Joe said softly. Then, without warning, he punched the wall with a disgusted snort. Well, she's a shit doctor, can't heal a patient, so she locks me up with barely anyone to talk to for decades then sends in a fresh face like you. Let me guess. You're the brightest new doctor on the block, and they think maybe you, and only you, could heal me. I shouldn't have been surprised that he could work out what I'd thought were private details about me, but I was. My shock must have shown in my face because he chuckled with disdain. It's not like I had to... It'd be magic to figure it out, he said. That bitch would only send someone in here for one reason. Because she wants to fire them. You know I was probably in here when you were in diapers. And no one since then had any idea what to do with me. She knows I'm not curable, you realize. You're just a sacrificial lamb. So she has something to report to my worthless fucking parents in order to... Keep them sending money. And so she can get rid of any bright, fresh faces who might make her look bad. I was shocked. This wasn't at all how I imagined the most feared patient in the hospital acting. He was bitter and frustrated, yes, but seemed remarkably lucid, even sane. Hardly fruit for twenty-plus years of confusion and terror let alone even still being institutionalized. What was more, his comments left a sour taste in my mouth and made me doubt what I'd been told. Could all the stories about him really just be an elaborate act to keep such a reliable revenue stream in the hospital? I quirked an eyebrow. Joe, you don't think there's anything wrong with you? I asked. What the fuck should I know? Joe shot back. As far as I can tell, it's everyone else who goes insane around me. It's happened so often, I sometimes wonder if they're doing it on purpose, 
just to make me go as fucking nuts as they are with the anticipation for what crazy shit things someone will do next. He sounded too sincere to be lying, and despite everything I'd heard, I began to feel sorry for him. Still, some of the stories stuck with me enough to make me worry, so I didn't reply immediately. Better to keep him talking. However, again, he must have noticed my silence, because rather than continue his rant, Joe turned to look at me and gave me a pointed look. <laughs> well, go ahead, get it over with. He said with a bitter laugh, I'm sure I've done something to drive you nuts without realizing it in the past few minutes. I shook my head. No. Well, glory, hell of fucking Luya. But I can see the gears turning in that bright young brain of yours. Go on, spit it out. What's got you scrunching up your face like that? I shrugged. Honestly, I don't know what to think, Joe. You don't seem to be like a monster, but your file does have some troubling stuff in it. Oh, yeah, he sneered. This should be good. Like what? Well, I said, I don't think a normal person would try to rape a 12-year-old girl on her first night with him. Joe snorted. Is that what the file says happened with Nigel? I had to repress a double take. Someone as remorselessly evil of, as Joe had been made out to be. I didn't usually remember individual victims by name after this long. They might remember the acts, but generally the victim was so dehumanized in their mind that names weren't part of the package. What did happen with Niger and Joe? I asked. Why don't you give me your side of the story? He didn't answer at first, but kicked back on his bed in disgust. After a few moments of silence, he gave me an appraising look. Before I tell you, he said, I've just got one question for you. Yes? You got a cigarette? He gave me an uneven grin. Sometimes I get them from the orderlies. Calms me down a bit, relieves the boredom. They even disable the smoke detector, but what do you expect? I don't think anyone cares if I burn to death in here. As it happens, I did have a very worn-out old pack of cigarettes in one pocket. I scooped it out and handed him one of them, flickering my lighter on as he took his first drag. He let it out slowly, then smiled crookedly at me again. Thanks, Doc, he said. I guess you might be all right. I smiled back, despite my confusion. So, Nadia. Right, Nadia. Joe took another drag. Well, I know this is what a lot of people say, but the thing is, she came on to me. Immediately, I felt skepticism rise. I find that hard to believe, Joe. She was twelve. You were ten. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's too young. Joe said angrily, waving my comment away as if I were a fly. But you think she knew that? Her dad had been fucking her since she was at least ten. I think she figured it was just what boys and girls do. Anyway, she told me she couldn't sleep unless someone put it in her first and asked me to do it. 
Well, I was a kid, and I didn't know any better. They don't exactly give you the birds and bees talk in a place like this, you know? So I did. But I guess I did it wrong because she just started screaming, and the orderlies were right outside, so I couldn't exactly get off her. And you think they were going to listen to me after what they thought they saw? He let another gust of smoke out through his teeth and rolled his eyes. I shouldn't complain, I guess, since at least I won't die a virgin. Not how I'd have chosen to lose it, but we can't have everything. Against my better judgment, I had to admit, the story sounded plausible. Still, there was too much to that file to all be misunderstandings. I pressed him further. Even if I believe you, Joe, I said, it's not like that's the only thing. Your doctors keep dying or going nuts. And you think I'm doing it? Joe asked. He waved at his body in exasperation. Do I look threatening to you, doctor? No, I said, but if you're gaslighting them... Gaslighting? Bullshit. They didn't kill themselves because I was crazy. They killed themselves because they and everyone who ever worked on my case knew I was sane. My jaw dropped before I could think to stop it. Seeing this, Joe guffawed. Oh, I know, I know, it sounds ridiculous, but you can believe me, it's true. Has been since the second time my asshole parents left me here to get me out of their hair and told the doctors to come up with a reason to keep me. Well, the greedy fucks they were, they made shit up, but at least they knew what a farce it all was at first, before she came along. He growled low in his throat and spat on the ground before continuing. You know what I was going to be before your precious little Dr. G worked here, Doc? I was going to be the bitch case. That smug prick, Dr. A, made it more or less official policy that only the lowest-ranking doctors would be assigned to work on me because no one wanted to do therapy with a sane patient who was being kept here purely at his parents' request. Chug it up to my bad luck that Dr. G was the first one to get that assignment. Because let me tell you, Dr. G, she was too ambitious to waste her time with that. So what does she do? She spins a little tale about how terrifying I am to work with and leaves a suicide note about it just where the other doctors will find it. And next thing you know... She gets sick leave, gets to work on real patients when she gets back, and I go from being the case no one cares about to being the case no one dares to talk to. So what do they do? They start sending the doctors who they want to fire to work on me as an excuse to get rid of them. Those poor fuckers knew as soon as they would talk to me that if they failed to cure me, that bitch and her cold fish mentor would make sure their careers would be over, but that they couldn't possibly do it because there was nothing to cure. The ones who lasted the longest were the ones who were able to talk to themselves into drawing a paycheck just to spite this place. The longer they could live with that, the longer they stuck around, and I had to watch the only people who cared about me even slightly lose their minds in the process. 
I still had doubts, but for some reason, the more Joe talked, the more my heart went out to him. If I had to guess at what made him so sympathetic, it had to be his demeanor. I'm not really getting it across here, but even though he was technically defending himself, his voice still sounded hollow and resigned, like he knew that even if I believed him, it wouldn't help anything. Like he was just giving his defense on autopilot. And because there was so little hope in what he was saying, it made me more inclined to believe he was being honest. I should have recognized that this could just as easily be a psychopath's manipulation, in retrospect. But remember, I was only a resident at the time. Anyway, I spent another 45 minutes talking to Joe, trying to see if I could spot any sign of latent insanity before I finally had to go attend to other patients. When I closed the door to his cell, I felt sick, though not for any of the reasons I had expected. The fact was that despite every horrifying story his file contained, I saw absolutely no evidence that this man was anything other than a desperately lonely scapegoat abandoned by his parents and made into an underfunded, understaffed hospital's resident freak. Under the circumstances, I would have ordinarily recommended his release to my superior, but if even part of Joe's story was true, that obviously would have been a terrible decision. If he was right, then this hospital wasn't going to let a cash cow like him go, even if he was sane. However, not being completely gullible, I decided I'd give myself another month of sessions with him before I decided to do anything drastic. Perhaps I'd simply caught him on a good day, and in a little while, he'd transform into the nightmare-channeling fiend I'd seen depicted in his file. Besides, I still hadn't listened to the audio tapes in his full file, nor had I looked at the notes from the attending physicians that had been redacted. I decided to start with the audio tapes, since the first session with Joe, when he, ostensibly, was only suffering from night terrors, might give me some clues that the other doctors had missed because of its seeming banality. Since my fiancé had to study for first-semester finals at her college that night, I decided to spend the evening going over whatever I could. The audio tape of Joe's first session was old and more than a little warped, and I was worried that it wouldn't play when I popped it into my cassette player. However, after a few disconcerting grinding and whirring noises, the spools of the tape began to move and the sound of a tinny mid-Atlantic-tinged man's voice flowed from my speakers. Hello, Joe. My name's Dr. A. Your parents tell me you have uh, trouble sleeping. There was a brief interval in which I imagined Joe must have nodded because Dr. A went on speaking. Could you tell me why that is? Another brief pause, and a child's voice answered. The thing in my walls won't let me. What followed was pretty much exactly what had been described in the file, though I will say that when Joe first described the thing in the walls, I let out an involuntary shudder. It was apparently some sort of disgusting worm and spider hybrid with segmented eyes and long finger-like appendages that ate negative emotions. However, aside from the obviously disturbing nature of this monster, it seemed that Joe was just your typical imaginative child. 
Dr. A explained patiently that the monster was simply something Joe had created through his own imagination, and that he could control it if he wanted to. Of course, he told Joe this with the kind of toned-down language and potty humor that would register most successfully with a six-year-old, and by the end, Joe was laughing and promising he'd tell the monster to its face that he wasn't scared of it the next time it troubled him. I couldn't help but crack a smile. Brave kid. Now, before you ask, yes, I did transcribe the tape for future reference. However, unlike the paper files I still have, that document's on an old, beat-up laptop that I purposely left behind in a storage locker after all this concluded. I'll probably go back and get the thing and see if it still works well enough to get the file, but what with it being just Christmas, I haven't been able to make myself go back and do it. I'll get around to it at some point, but just now, I want to focus on getting through this part of the story. If you're desperate for details, don't worry. I have plenty of excuses to drop them in down the line. Not that I'm looking forward to it, but just so you don't bitch at me too much. Anyway, back to my initial prep session. After listening to that first tape, the only thing to do was... Listen to the tape of the orderly's experiences. Upon first looking at it, I did notice something that, at first, seemed odd. A narrow strip of what looked like very old masking tape had been plastered to it with the words 3 a.m. to 4 a.m. written on it. I was puzzled. Why only record one hour? And then it hit me. The file mentioned that the recording had been mostly silent. This must be the only tape that contained anything of interest. Otherwise, why preserve it? Prepping myself to listen very hard for something over the next hour, I pushed the tape in and hit play. It was, as I suspected, almost nothing but dead air for the first 20 minutes, and more than once, I had to stop myself zoning out. Eventually, I resorted to counting the seconds under my breath, periodically looking at my watch, as a means of making sure I stayed attentive to something. Yet, when I hit the 20-minute mark, the tape seemed to come to life, and I did hear something. First, there was the sound of breathing that I'd seen mentioned in the file. Dr. A hadn't exaggerated. This was undoubtedly the sound of someone having an anxiety attack. The breathing went on for about 30 seconds, before I heard the sound of something shifting, and then footsteps. Fast footsteps, as if someone was running, followed by the smack of something soft on something hard. Throughout, I heard heavy breathing, presumably of the person who'd just been running, then a rough voice mustering several obscene words over and over again in increasingly terrified accents. Then there was the sound of shuffling footsteps, and abruptly, at only thirty minutes, the recording seemed to completely cut off. Annoyed, I rewound it. It was obvious what I had heard. The orderly had clearly been too freaked out to stay the whole night and had made a run for it. That is, assuming the notes were accurate. He might have just decided to go home and fake the scares to keep the legend of Joe alive. However, just to be sure, I thought I should listen to the ten minutes of activity again, just to make sure I hadn't misheard. 
This time, I pulled out a set of headphones and plugged them into the cassette player and turned the volume as high as it would go without hurting my ears. Then I listened. Again, the same sounds, the rapid-fire, anxious breathing, the sound of a shifting body, the running footsteps, the swearing, the laughter, the shuffling walk out of the hospital. Hang on, laughter. That hadn't been there before. I rewound the tape again and listened. At a lower volume, the sound easily could have been mistaken for background noise. But through headphones cranked up that high, it was almost indubitable. While the orderly swore into his mic between the gasps in his uttered epithets, I thought I could hear the sound of a low, rumbling chuckle in the background, as if it was being picked up from a great distance. But even from a distance, I could tell that the sound must have been far louder in person to have carried into the mic. If not for the poor quality of the recording, which made me doubt its authenticity, I'd probably have been freaked out enough to drop the case right there. You see, that laugh did not sound like any sound a person should be able to produce. It was too hoarse, too low, too guttural. Almost like someone had given the rhythm of a human laugh to the sound of a glacier collapsing. But then it was far away, and the recording was very old. So, for all I knew, it was just something innocuous in the background that had gotten warped by years of disuse. I ejected the tape, figuring there was nothing else I could learn from it, and settled down to have a look at the notes. These I will not bother transcribing, and the reason is this. If I'd thought there was any chance that Joe had been mistaken, that he was being deliberately given the worst doctors in the hospital, before reading them, I was convinced otherwise. These were some of the most disjointed, unhelpful, and frankly incoherent notes I'd read in my life. They jumped from diagnosis to diagnosis and medication to medication, seemingly on a dime, until I began to wonder if Joe yeah, might be have just been slowly driven insane by all the different side effects. Some made reference to having him restrained or even muzzled during therapy, which seemed completely counterproductive to me. I mean, what's the point of talk therapy if the patient can't talk back? Suffice to say, by the end, I was all but certain that these people were just taking out their frustrations with their own medical ineptitude on a helpless patient and I shuddered to think how many malpractice lawsuits could have been filed on the basis of what I'd read. The only notes I could even begin to follow were the ones written by Dr. G herself, and while they did show a highly competent physician at work, at the end of the day they all but confirmed Joe's hypothesis. Dr. G's notes were very dismissive at first, and I could practically hear the resentment in every sentence she wrote about him. It was obvious that she thought this was a patient entirely beneath her, and that she wanted desperately to be reassigned. Yet, as the notes went on, the resentment seemed to bleed out of her tone and be replaced with an extreme sense of triumph. At the same time, they got shorter and shorter, as if she got more and more certain that she wouldn't need notes because the case was so close to being fixed. This is a good example. Joe responding well to final treatment. We'll be checked back in a week, if the process even takes that long to work. 
Well, whatever final treatment she referred to definitely bore some sort of results. You see, exactly a week after that brief, almost flippant aside, there was her final memo, which was so different it was almost whiplash-inducing. That memo I will transcribe here. From Dr. G to Dr. A. Effective tomorrow, I'm resigning my post at hospital name, redacted. I failed my patients, failed my colleagues, and failed myself. Nothing can ever make up for it. Please do not bother sending my last paycheck as I don't deserve it and don't expect to need it. Thank you for the opportunity to work with you, and I am sorry I let you down so thoroughly. I am sorry. So, so sorry. Rose. Needless to say, this seems suspicious. True, Dr. G could have merely picked a disastrously wrong final treatment, but in view of what I'd read and heard, it seemed far more likely that she'd intended that only to be the final treatment that she would perform on Joe because of her plan to fake her own suicide. Otherwise, why would her notes be so short in details about her seemingly successful treatment? This, from my perspective was almost the final nail in the mystery-patient-no-one-can-cure theory's coffin. Though I still resolved to give Joe a month's worth of observations, I was already beginning to wonder what it would take to prove to some higher authority in the world of medicine just how much abuse this one poor man had suffered at the hands of the unethical and callous Dr. G. In fact... If I'd thought I might have overlooked something when I heard the phantom laughter on the tape earlier, I now wondered if the tape had somehow been altered, since Dr. G had been the one holding on to it. Either way, from where I sat, it was Joe who'd been living in a nightmare, not his orderlies, and not his doctors. In fact, this revelation cast Nessie's suicide in a whole new light. That kindly old woman simply hadn't had it in her to keep torturing this poor man, and yet hadn't been able to tear herself away from a hospital that had been home for so long. So she'd killed herself and tried to warn everyone away from him to prevent them from suffering the same guilt. And all because one cruel woman had been simply too arrogant and too ambitious to handle being given a dud case for her first assignment. Even so, on some level, I felt relieved. This was a horror story, all right, but at least it seemed like it probably had a human monster. And if Dr. G was the monster I suspected, then by the time this was over, I vowed that I was going to put a stake through her heart. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. 
Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Going back to the hospital to treat Joe the next day was, as you might expect, a fairly tense experience. Now that I was beginning to suspect that I was going to have to end up openly defying the chief of medicine herself, much of what had been routine suddenly began to take on a sinister character. For every bottle of medication that I logged for my patients, I found myself wondering if those prescriptions could be used against me. As a result, I got far more stingy with pills, to the point where I'm pretty sure my supervisor purposefully assigned me the job of doing clinic work on the junkies who'd periodically come in faking an illness to get their fix. Satisfying, though it usually was, to watch a meth addict's face fall when their paper-thin list of symptoms was exposed to me. This, instead, made the situation worse. I mean, what if Dr. G decided to bribe one of those junkies to sue me? Either way, I felt like I was trapped in a lose-lose situation. And then there were the small matter of the orderlies. Mind you, while I was used to seeing orderlies everywhere, and before would have thought nothing of it, my suspicions had made me hypervigilant. As a result, I noticed every single person around me. Not only that, but I noticed patterns in which of them were there at any given time. Once I started looking for these, it became excruciatingly obvious that I was being followed by two orderlies in particular. And these were the biggest, most hulking brooks on the ward. One, Marvin, was a bald-headed, pale behemoth who must have been at least six foot five, and whose hospital uniform couldn't quite disguise his fully tattooed arms. The other, Hank, was a dreadlocked black leviathan who was almost as vast as Marvin was tall and looked like he could spat twice his weight without breaking a sweat. They would have been noticeable even to an unobservant person, but to me, their constant lurking presence practically screamed with malevolence. And not that they obviously followed me. No, they at least had enough wits they seemed to be working on something else whenever I tried to catch them observing my movements, whether it was checking a patient's vitals or carrying mountains of new supplies into the closets. All the same, it was obviously too coincidental that at least one of them should be around me all the time, and their presence was just one among many that I grew increasingly paranoid over the coming weeks. It didn't help that the longer I spent treating Joe, the more convinced I became that he'd been right. I saw him at least once a day for an hour, and over that time, his apparent sanity never wavered for a moment. 
In other words, even if his doctors had thought he was a terrifying medical mystery at one point, it was obvious to me now that he was being kept at the hospital purely because he brought in money from his wealthy but uncaring parents. At first, some small part of me entertained the hope that this last bit might not be true and that Joe's parents might simply be unaware that their son was being kept for no reason other than to bleed money from them. However, when I broached this subject to Joe, he only barked a harsh laugh and told me not to be an idiot. When I pressed him on the subject, he grew visibly angry. If my parents give a shit about me, why haven't they visited me? He asked, his voice quivering with a combination of grief and rage. I put up my hands to soothe him. Everyone's encouraged to stay away from you, Joe, even the doctors. It's not a stretch to think they might believe the same things we're told. It's not like I'm asking them to waltz in and... Give me a knitted sweater every Christmas, he spat back. But who said they couldn't at least come in and look through the window in my door once in twenty fucking years? Or check to see who's treating me? None of the doctors I've had in this hellhole have ever mentioned them coming to ask about me. Hell, even when I've asked people directly, they've all said no one comes looking for me. Face it, Doc, they left me here to rot. They don't care who I am, so long as it's not with them. I think you might be being a bit harsh. I said, then instantly regretted it when I met his eyes. They felt like they were searing through me. A bit harsh. He croaked softly, though there was poison in every syllable. A bit harsh. Do yourself a favor, Doc, and don't talk about what you don't know. If you knew my parents, you wouldn't be shooting off your mouth like that. What makes you think... What makes me think they're heartless shit heels? he snarled. Let me tell you a story, Doc. You'll want to sit down. It's not pleasant. I decided to listen and took a seat next to his. He remained glaring at me as he spoke. When I was five, just a year before they decided to get rid of me, I made a stray cat out in the woods on my family's estate, he said. But she wasn't like just any stray cat. She was friendly and tame and would let me pet her and even hold her. I called her Fiberwood Flower, or Fiber for short, because my dad had made his fortune in textiles, so I used to hear him use the word Fiberwood. And she was pretty, so calling her a flower seemed appropriate. I was a kid, you know, so just mixing words together seemed fine. Well, eventually she stopped hiding in the woods and started coming onto the family's estate to visit me. I'd leave out scraps for my food that I didn't eat for her, and we got sort of close, that is, until my parents found out. His fist clenched. My mother was violently allergic to cats, he said. And as soon as my dad found out, I'd been sneaking one onto the estate. He was furious. I tried to tell them I'd be good and wouldn't let her upset mother, and though she was a nice cat and my friend. But my dad didn't listen. 
He marched right out of the house over to where Fiber was sitting. Well, she was used to people being friendly, so of course she didn't run. I wish she had, though, because when he got her, he picked her up and drop-kicked her into the fucking woods before telling me if I ever got near her again, he'd do the same to me. Then he took the belt to me and locked me in my room. I never saw her again. Having dealt with my own loss of a childhood pet, I felt sick hearing the story. Needless to say, I never mentioned his parents again, as I was thoroughly convinced of their cruelty by that point. However, the story did give, at least, a sense to me that even if I couldn't treat Joe for the fantastic disorders attributed to him in his file, I could probably treat him for at least a couple of issues. He was obviously suffering from depression, for example, and with good reason, and the abuse from his parents had clearly made it difficult for him to trust people, not to mention whatever else had happened. So, over the course of the next month, I decided I would start seeing if I could at least make his situation more bearable by lessening whatever parts of it were in his head. This obviously necessitated going back to look at his file, albeit with a much more skeptical eye. While most of it seemed to be an obvious fabrication now, I did notice a couple of details that whoever had written it obviously never bothered to disguise. Perhaps most important of these tidbits of information was the fact that Joe had been voluntarily committed by his guardians, which meant that theoretically, since he was 18 now, he should have been able to check himself out. I resolved to broach this at the next meeting we had. To say I regretted it is a gross understatement, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Here's how the conversation went. Why not just walk out, I asked. If they really don't care where you go, why not leave? You were voluntarily committed. You could leave against medical advice. I instantly sensed that it was the wrong question. The look Joe was giving me made the room's temperature feel like it had plunged to Arctic levels. Did you ever read my file? He asked softly. Yes, I said, all of it, why? Then why are you asking me a question you know the answer to? Uh, I'm, I'm not, I said slowly. Joe, if there's something keeping you here, I don't know anything about it. He sighed expansively. I've been trying to leave since I turned 18. But who'd let me out if they saw what was in my file? Used to be they'd send in a new doctor every couple of years just to keep the trick going. And when the doctors got too scared, they started making shit up. Fuck. Cigarette. I had taken carrying these with me since he invariably wanted one whenever we met. I pulled one out and lit it while it puffed. Seeming a bit pacified, he went on. I almost thought I might get back out when Nessie was giving my meds every night. I stared. Nessie? I asked, my throat dry. What did Nessie have to do with it? The look he gave me was laced with pity. 
Uh, so you knew, Nessie, he said sorrowfully. Well, then, tell me something, Doc. Does Nessie seem the type to be a good jailer? I didn't have to think about it. I shook my head. He smiled mournfully. Well, you're right. She wasn't, he said. She knew what they were doing, and it was killing her inside. At the same time, even I knew they couldn't fire her, and she didn't want to leave. It's only because she was so attached to this place that I couldn't get her to agree to spill the beans. That is, until the last night I saw her. You know, the one when she committed suicide. My blood felt like it had turned to liquid nitrogen. What do you mean to say? That they killed her over it? No, I don't. He said, because I couldn't prove it even if I did mean to say it. All the same, if I had any illusions about getting out, they died right before you showed up. The psychiatrist part of my brain screamed at me that this must be a product of Joe's isolation, which might have, well, made him paranoid, even delusional about the prospect of escape. If it had been any other patient... That's exactly what I would have told myself, and not lost any slip over it. But this case was already so strange that this explanation seemed almost laughably insufficient. Joe seemed so utterly lucid about everything else that it was very difficult to imagine a delusion like this being buried beneath that facade. Besides, if it was a delusion, how to explain Nessie's death? I'd seen her very shortly before her death. There was nothing in her behavior that suggested suicidal thoughts or even depression. And anyway, on the off chance that Joe wasn't paranoid, this had gone well beyond the realm of medical malpractice into serious criminal conspiracy. I was frightened of what might happen if I tried to interfere, but I was even more determined that I wouldn't be an accomplice. My time treating Joe had made me care about his well-being just as much as I would care about any other patients, if not more so, and besides, what if someone else blew the whistle? I'd be considered an accomplice. All the same, it seemed utterly hopeless to think that I could do anything without breaking the law. If I went to the authorities, I'd probably end up committed myself for claiming that a twenty-year-long history of mental illness was the product of such an elaborate conspiracy, and all on the word of a mental patient. If I resigned my post in protest, it'd just leave Joe at the mercy of someone with fewer scruples than me. There was only one thing for it. I'd have to find a way to break him out in secret. If it failed, I told myself, at least I wasn't unfireable like Nessie which meant they probably wouldn't feel the need to kill me to get rid of me. Sure, I could be banned from practicing medicine again, if they pressed charges. But if Dr. G was vindictive enough to try that, at least I could make a stab at trying to expose the whole thing before she got her way, seeing as I wouldn't have anything else to lose. And if I succeeded, well, at worst, I would have let a somewhat paranoid but essentially stable patient out into society and could continue working at the hospital with a clear conscience, knowing the conspiracy was that much less likely to exist. 
Not that breaking a patient out of a, any mental hospital, let alone this one, would be easy. Security cameras were fairly ubiquitous on the premises, and the staff kept a close eye on who had the key to which patient's room. If I wanted to do this, I'd have to look in it like an accident and got Joe loose. Nevertheless, I was smart and resourceful and soon worked out a plan. Since the hospital would need to be operating with a skeleton crew for my plan to work, I decided to take a few extra night shifts in the weeks before I did anything, just so I'd be able to get a sense of who was around during the hospital's off hours, and most importantly, so they wouldn't think anything of seeing me around during those off hours. My fiancé complained of my absence at first, but when I explained that it was vital to the treatment of one of my patients, she seemed to understand, well, at least for the time being. As to the plan itself, I won't bore you with the details, but suffice to say, it involved leaving my lab coat and keys in Joe's room, supposedly by accident, then setting off an equally accidental fire alarm, which would cause most of the staff to evacuate the hospital, clearing the way for Joe's escape. I'd also made sure Joe knew the way out in advance by giving him a pack of cigarettes that was secretly wrapped with a floor plan of the hospital on the inside, where I'd marked all the less-used fire exits. In retrospect, it was a terribly easy plan to botch, and Joe himself called me out on the fact when I told him the plan. Doc, you're crazier than I am, he said with his characteristic crooked smile. If that plan works, I'm Mickey Mouse. It'll work, I told him, fiercely. Even if they treat you like a criminally insane case, this hospital doesn't treat any other criminally insane patients, so our security is pretty fucking lax. Besides, the staff are lazy, and no one will expect anyone to try to break you out. Not after what happened with Nessie. He gave his head a fatalistic shake, but there was a gleam in his eye that said I might have given him the first ounce of hope he'd had since being committed. Well, I won't start planning any trips, just in case, he said wryly. But if they catch me and throw me back in here, I won't tell them it was your idea. Oh, and Doc, God love you for trying. If this works, I won't forget that I owe you a life's worth of freedom. And that was it. All that was left to do was carry out the plan. And so it was that one week from the month I'd given myself to see if Joe really was nuts, I found myself walking to his room and offering what I'd thought to be my ticket to psychological history, his most promising means of escape in years. The walk to his room was one of the tensest experiences of my life and I felt my palms sweat uncontrollably as I walked down hallway after hallway, the faint muttering and gibbering from the patients I knew to be insane, seeming almost a demented mirror of my own scattered thoughts. If I was caught, or he was, would they only fire me? Or would they want to make an example of me to anyone else who knew the secret, or who tried to pry too deeply into Joe's history? 
Perhaps Nessie's death hadn't been clear enough. Perhaps they really needed to send a message to anyone else who might have second thoughts. I'd met Dr. G, after all, and she hadn't seemed the type who might leave a loose end lying around. I didn't really have to do this, did I? I could just turn around and walk out now. I should just turn around and walk out now. I had a fiancé, a life ahead of me. This wasn't any of my business. I didn't have to do this, did I? But no, I knew I had to. It was the right thing to do. And I was not going to make myself an accessory to what amounted to kidnapping and murder just because I was too afraid for my own skin. Besides, there was barely anyone on staff, and by the time my fire alarm had gone off, there'd be almost no one around to stop Joe leaving. My plan was close to foolproof. It would be fine. As I reached the door to Joe's room, the sound of heavy footfalls caught my ears, and I turned to see Hank the orderly pushing a mop down the hall slowly. Shit! What if he knew uh, what I was doing? Nah, that, that wasn't possible. There was no way anyone would know. I kept it so quiet even my fiancé didn't know. I would be safe. I would be fine. I just needed to stay in Joe's room until Hank moved on past this hallway. It wouldn't be hard. His footfalls were loud enough that I could probably hear them even through Joe's door. It would be fine. It would all be fine. I sucked in my breath slowly and let it out even more so. Then I turned the key to Joe's room, stepped inside, shut it gingerly behind me, and turned to face him. He was standing with his back to me, looking out the window, and I barely paid much attention to him as I frantically pulled off my lab coat and laid it on his bed, then sat down to listen for Hank's footfalls. As I suspected, Hank passed the door after about ten minutes, then slowly, his steps died away after about five more. I let out a sigh of relief and turned to open the door. Doc! I turned to see Joe looking at me. There was a hungry, longing look in his eye, as of a starving man who knows he's about to get a feast and can't wait. I raised my eyebrows at him. Yeah, Joe? Thanks, Joe said, his voice a husky whisper. This is exactly what I need. His phrasing was a bit odd, but I didn't think much of it. I smiled quickly at him. You're welcome. And with that, I opened the door and stepped out into the hall. I was about to turn and shut it again, when suddenly... A pair of hands like baseball mitts clamped around my shoulders. Ain't you forgetting something, Parker? Boomed Hank's basso voice from just beside the door. I went still as a statue, my mind racing. Hank chuckled in my ear. For such a smart kid, you sure can't hear so good if you think a man walking soft and walking away are the same thing. He'd been hiding beside the door the whole time. But why? Did that mean? Now I'm going to send someone to get your lab coat out of that room, but you and me? 
We're going to go talk to Dr. G, and you're going to tell her all about what you was planning to do with that motherfucker in there tonight. He boomed. At those words, all of a sudden, movement seemed possible again, and I began to struggle against his grip, even though it was like trying to bend iron bars. Then a thought struck me. Hank might not have been one of the orderlies assigned to Joe. He might not know what was going on after all. Let me go, I hissed. I don't know what she told you, but you don't understand, Hank. She's keeping a sane man in there. And he brings in so much money to this hospital that no one cares if he's sane. She might have killed Nessie to keep it secret. Hank, let me go and talk to him and you'll see. I swear you'll see. She said you'd say something like that, Hank said placidly, still holding me as if I were a particularly belligerent ragdoll. I ain't buying it, Parker, no offense to you. I was about to cry with frustration and nerves at this point, but before a single tear could drop down my cheek, I heard something that suddenly wiped all thought of my rescue mission from my mind. Rather... It made me wonder if I myself had suffered a psychotic break. From inside Joe's cell, someone was laughing. But it wasn't Joe. It couldn't have been. It didn't sound human at all. Instead, what came from that cell was a sepulchral, moist, hacking chuckle that sounded like it came from a rotting throat. It was a voice I'd heard before. The voice I'd heard from the river as it dragged Marty under in my dreams. I had gone limp from shock, but Hank didn't react at all. It seemed like he hadn't even heard it, though I didn't have the presence of mind to ask. All I could do was stare at Joe's door as Hank started to pull me away. That hoarse sound of nightmare echoing in the hall and in my brain. The ten minutes it took to arrive at Dr. G's office were the longest ten minutes I've ever experienced. I had no idea what would happen to me, or even what just had. I kept replaying the things Joe had said in my own mind, then going back over Dr. G's warnings about his madness being contagious, wondering which was true, or if everyone had just been lying to me the whole time. Was I going crazy? had the stress of being caught simply made me snap. If I had been sane before getting caught, did that mean that Dr. G and her minions might still do something to me? If I had been, when had Joe's madness spread to me? Was I insane even now? If I was, then why did everything still seem so grounded and real around me? And if I was sane, then how had Joe been able to laugh in exactly the right way to remind me of my worst childhood nightmare, of the nightmare that had made me realize what my worst fear was in the first place? My frantic, confused, panicky thoughts were interrupted as Hank yanked the door to Dr. G's office open and shoved me inside without a word. My nose nearly made contact with the carpet as I fell forward from his push, and it took me a moment to steady myself and realize who was in the room with me. Dr. G, of course, was there, leaning on her desk and glaring down at me with an expression that made me think of a hawk regarding a rotting carcass and deciding it wasn't worth eating. 
but she wasn't the only one at the desk. Seated behind her, in a well-appointed leather armchair usually reserved for the chief of medicine, sat a wizened, tired-looking old man in a heavily patched sport coat, regarding me with hard eyes over a pair of well-worn silver spectacles. I had no idea who this stranger was, but if Dr. G was letting him use her chair, then he was obviously someone important. He looked far too old to be a plainclothes detective, as his wrinkled face and thinning silver hair marked him as a man who couldn't have been less than 70 or 80 years old. But who else could he be? The man cleared his throat and spoke in a patrician-sounding mid-Atlantic accent that seemed oddly familiar to me, even though I couldn't place it. So this is the latest one, is it, Rose? Dr. G. didn't reply, but simply nodded. The gesture immediately struck me as out of place, and in a moment I realized why. Her expression, as she inclined her head, had none of her curtness or haughtiness I'd seen her display toward me. Instead, it was almost girlish in its deference, not caring about the cause at the moment, but simply glad to have scented weakness I pushed myself to my feet and jabbed my finger at her accusingly. All right, I barked. I don't know if you're planning to fire me or do something worse, but before you do, I want some fuck... Parker, began Dr. G, but I barreled right past her. Answers. Did you think you could mislead me about a patient that I'd taken it lying down? Is all that crap in Joe's file just there to keep him there? Parker... Even if it isn't, why did you send these two thugs to spy on me every chance they got if you've got nothing to hide? Why'd you have one of them drag me here like I'm a prisoner? And how much have you been spying on me? If you knew what I was... Parker! Dr. G's white-hot voice seared through the room and almost upon instinct, I shut up. The old man behind the desk chuckled dryly. He's a feisty one. Reminds me of someone, Rose, he said. Dr. G's pained expression gave me another momentary bit of courage. And that's another thing. Who the hell... Parker, you are going to want to shut up and sit down right now before you say something we both regret, Dr. G hissed at me, standing up from her leaning position. She was still barely taller than me in her heels, but her aspect and ramrod straight posture made her almost tower as she said it. Not wanting to push any luck I might have, I cast my eyes around for the nearest chair and sat down immediately. She exhaled slowly and leaned back on her desk. Now, she said, let's get one thing straight before we go any further. Parker, I have no intention of hurting you, and although you pushed your luck on this point very far, I'm not going to fire you either. My mouth fell open. She gave a scornful laugh. Quiet, I see. Good. Keep it that way, because as of now, you haven't said anything that suggests you've done anything wrong, and therefore, whatever you might have been planning to do in Joe's room tonight, we can both ignore it, she said smoothly. Now, to answer both your implicit and explicit questions, I sent my orderlies to watch you because... That had been standard procedure for every Dr. Joe's head since 1983. 
Normally, we only send them to watch every few weeks, but the reaction you had after your first session with him convinced me we should keep you under more constant surveillance. I started to ask a question, but her hand shot up so quickly that I clapped my mouth shut as if on command. First off, you spent almost twice as long in Joe's room as anyone else had on their first session. Secondly, you didn't look afraid so much as queasy and uncertain, neither of which pretended that you'd gotten the same experience as his other doctors. In fact, the more we watched you, the less like his other doctors you got. For one thing, you kept going back in for similarly long sessions, and sometimes you even looked happy or relieved when you walked out. It didn't make any sense to the orderlies or to me. So I did what any physician faced with a mystery does. I got a second opinion. And that's where I come in, said the older man. I'm coming to you, Dr. G shot over her shoulder at the old man reproachfully. She turned back to me. I suppose this is as good a time as any to introduce the two of you. Parker, meet Dr. Thomas A., the first man to treat Joe, and my earliest mentor as a psychiatrist. Suddenly, I realized where I recognized his voice from. It was, in fact, simply an aged version of the voice I heard on the tape of Joe's first session. I almost had trouble believing it. If Dr. A was still alive, he must have been quite old. Yet his mental lucidity was clearly not only intact, but evidently just as sharp as it had been twenty years ago. Though I thought, however sharp Dr. A's mind was, it couldn't be as sharp as his eyes as he looked at me. After surveying me for a moment, the older man nodded. A pleasure, Parker, he said. Though I can't really say I'm as impressed with you as I'd like to be. You might have the distinction of being the worst failure as a physician that Joe has ever had, given what we seem to have caught you trying to do. The words felt like acid poured over an open wound. I'd never heard such harshness delivered with such impersonal coolness in my life. My face must have fallen because the old man gave me an even sterner look. Not used to being told you're a fool, I see, he said. Well, you are, and thank God you're a predictable one. Otherwise, your idiocy might have done real damage. And to answer your question of how I knew what you were going to do, it's simple. Rose told me that your greatest fear is not being able to save someone you care about. She also told me that there was no one on staff who mattered to you, and that everyone who did matter was likely well out of reach of anyone locked in this hospital. It followed from those facts that the only way for Joe to make you experience your worst fear was to make you care about and fail to save him. He gave an exasperated sigh and looked up at Dr. G. I don't blame you for not seeing it, Rose. You fell victim to a similar bit of trickery, if I recall correctly. Dr. G flushed beet red, which made Dr. A roll his eyes. Yes, I know you hate being told what a fool you can be just as much as your boy here, but you were young. You grew out of it. He said with slightly more gentleness, before turning back to me and resuming his stony demeanor. Which is something you'll have to do, and fast, after that stunt you attempted tonight, Parker. I'd have fired you on the spot, but Rose has a high opinion of your intellect, 
and thinks you might be able to give us some insight into that walking mental plague we call a patient. That's enough, Thomas, said Dr. G. I don't want to make the poor kid quit just yet. And anyway, even though you ended up being right, your hypothesis was only a guess. I know how you like to show off, but I think Parker is much more likely to learn his lesson once he finds out how we knew what he was going to do. Dr. Ray waved his hand irritably, as if to say, Well, get on with it then. Dr. G turned back to me and cleared her throat. Parker, there is a reason I keep referring to what you were planning to do in the vaguest possible terms. It's because I want to be able to keep plausible deniability. You see, we only have one person who claims to have heard you confess your intentions, and given who that is, we can dismiss it, so long as you don't say anything explicitly uh, confessional. Now, I'm going to tell you who your witness is, but before I do, you have to promise you're not going to say something stupid that confirms their accusation. Deal? Feeling bewildered at what I might be about to hear, I nodded slowly. At that point, my relief at the lengths she was going to in order to keep my job was all that kept me from screaming with confusion. Dr. G gave me a brittle smile. Good. Parker, we brought you here because one of Joe's orderlies told us he'd heard that you were planning to help Joe escape from the hospital. And when we asked how he knew, he said he'd been asked to tell us by Joe himself. As the weight of those words slammed into me, I realized that even if I'd wanted to confess, I couldn't have. All of a sudden, my spine was ice, my mouth was dry, and I felt like I might throw up if I let myself try to speak. Seeing my expression, Dr. G opened a drawer in her desk and pulled out a bottle of what looked like scotch as well as a glass. She poured a generous helping and handed it to me. Hey, drink that. You look like you need it, she said. Doctor's orders. Despite the roiling feeling in my stomach, I did as she ordered. At first, it made me feel sicker, but then a numbing warmth spread over my brain and I felt my muscles relax ever so slightly. It was a welcome relief after what I'd just heard. Dr. G gave me a sympathetic look. Dr. A, however, simply looked grimly amused. Rose, you disappoint me, he said. I never drank a drop of that stuff, and I withstood what that little shit could do to people. Oh, shut up, Thomas, said Dr. G as she pulled out another glass and poured herself a drink. We all can't be Puritans. Evidently, said Dr. A. Nevertheless, I think you've done enough talking. This miscreant needs to tell us just what the hell he was thinking before we go any further. Despite being on the job only a month, he might have spent more time actually talking to Joe than most of the others. He needs to tell us what happened and what he knows. Maybe it was the shock of what I'd just heard. Maybe it was all my anger looking for a new outlet after everything that had motivated it had been stripped away. Maybe it was the scotch. Or maybe it was all of the above, but something snapped in me then. I was sick of being talked about so dismissively, as if I were a naughty child who wasn't even there. 
I was sick of having these revelations dumped on me without getting any chance to process them. But more than anything else, I was sick to my stomach at the thought that I might have just been set up to fail. I glared back across the table at Dr. A, pouring enough contempt in my gaze to match his cool, disdainful look a hundred times over. Not a chance, old man, I said, not even stopping in the face of Dr. G's gasp of outrage. From what I've gathered, you and your student here put me on a collision course with something you fully expected to hurt me and didn't even tell me everything you knew before I went in. I wasn't supposed to cure him, was I? I was just a lab rat for you and her because you wanted to see what he did to me. Well, I'm done with it. If you want to know what I found out talking to him, then you'd better let me in on what you know. All of it. Like why she tried to commit suicide, and why you gave up on treating him in the first fucking place, or why you kept putting vulnerable patients in harm's way long after you knew what he was capable of. There was the sound of a dull thud, and I realized that Dr. G had dropped her glass in shock. Dr. A, however, appeared unruffled, though I could tell that whatever air of geniality he tried to assume had dropped as soon as I finished speaking. The effect would have cowed me instantly if I hadn't been so full of my own righteous anger. I had felt like a small animal staring down a predator when facing Dr. G, but meeting the bloodless, icy gaze of that hunched-over old man, I barely felt acknowledged as a living human being at all. More like a statistic that had had the effrontery to talk back to him. But I didn't back down. I met his eyes for a long, terrible pause before he finally settled back in his chair and gave an irritated snort. Well, there's probably no harm in giving you a bit more information, he said. Lord knows I have little enough to do tonight. But understand this, Parker. If you want to hear all the details, then you'll start by accepting this. There is no curing that horror downstairs. There is only containing him. I didn't nod. I'm his doctor, I said with deliberate coldness. I'll be the judge of that. If looks could kill, Dr. A's expression probably would have rendered my corpse unrecognizable. Yes, I suppose you will, he said softly, and when we spoke again, his voice was cold enough to freeze the Atlantic Ocean. But just as you were earlier this evening, you are wrong on a very important point. You are not his doctor. You are, and have only ever been, just a tool to get data on him. I am his doctor, and I have borne that cross since he first entered this hospital. It took away my career, and it's going to take away my retirement. It is my life's work. It would be roses when I'm gone, but I don't intend to leave it unsolved that long. You do not, and will never understand what it is to be the last person standing between Joe and a world that cannot understand or resist him. So keep a civil tongue in your head from now on, or you'll find yourself in the curb. Anger tempted me to reply, but some part of me knew it would be a terrible idea. 
This was all the concession I was going to get out of this bitter, proud man, and it was more than I had any right to expect. So, forcing my frustration down to a simmer, I gave him the most deferential nod that I could. It seemed to appease him. Well, then, he said, Rose, why don't you tell him about the last smart, headstrong young doctor to try and treat our pet monster? I looked up at Dr. G, and to my surprise, she wasn't looking at me with the aloof air she'd used before. Instead, her eyes were filled with sadness and pity. I'm so sorry, she mouthed, so that only I could see. Then she began speaking in the crisp voice of a physician presenting her findings. When I began to treat Joe, he was only six years old and had been admitted to the hospital barely a month before being assigned to me, she began. At the time, as you know from reading my notes, my theory was simple, that he was showing the signs of sadistic personality disorder and sociopathy as a result of post-traumatic stress disorder brought on by his years of untreated night terrors, which were able to disturb him so successfully because of their apparent comorbidity with sleep paralysis and acute entomophobia. His evident psychological progeria was simply a defense mechanism designed to make him seem as if he had more control over the situation than he did, and his monstrous behavior was an act designed to make him feel more confident in facing the monster he imagined. Frankly, I thought the whole thing was embarrassingly easy and a waste of my time, as you probably guessed from my notes. She paused to collect her thoughts, then continued speaking. My proposed course of treatment was to get him to face the trauma of his night terrors through a combination of hypnosis therapy, talk therapy, and the usage of sedatives when he slept in order to prevent the nightmares from manifesting. This much you also know from the notes. However, what you may not know is that my treatment worked spectacularly. In fact, Joe barely showed any signs of the disorders I'd heard reported in Dr. A's initial diagnosis after the first couple days. Rather, something else manifested. He became very attached to me. She swallowed, and I could tell the memories were still painful. It's not an exaggeration, in fact, to say Joe began relating to me more like a surrogate mother. I already knew from his reports of his own upbringing that his parents had been distant at best, so this was not much of a surprise. But the more attached he got, the more he seemed to heal, and the more and more devoted he became. He seemed less and less like a proto-sociopath and more and more like a frightened young child. Her voice hitched. You have to understand something before I go any further. I'd also had a very chilly relationship with my parents from early on, and I'd had almost no friends even through my medical school days. I rarely dated, and to this day I've never married or had any children, because I simply don't let people get close to me if I can help it. However, something in the way Joe related to me brought out all of my mothering instincts. For the first time in my life, I felt needed and loved unconditionally, and while I tried to keep my medical distance, there was just something about him that made my defenses against affection melt, and the more nurturing I became, the more his condition seemed to improve. 
The tears in her eyes were obvious now, and she blinked them back hastily, even as her voice became brittle with the strain. I was sure I'd be able to get him discharged very soon around my fourth month, and so, as a final experiment to test his ability to empathize, I let him have a pet. A little cat, because I'd grown up with cats, and I thought he might relate to them the same way I had, being someone who had trouble around other people. I don't recall what he called her. Something about a flower, I think. Fiberwood flower, I said softly. She looked at me, wide-eyed. Yes, she said. Yes, exactly. How did you? Just finish the story, Rose, said Dr. A., We'll be able to find out what he knows much quicker once you've finished. Dr. G sucked in her breath and nodded, her sharp veneer covering her previous vulnerability like a well-worn mask. Anyway, she continued, I gave him fiberwood flour and made Dr. A agree that if he took care of her properly for a week, that would prove he'd been cured of his antisocial tendencies. Her face clouded over, but not with sadness this time, with anger. He treated that poor cat like an angel for six days, she said. And then on the last day, when I walked into his cell, I found her corpse lying on the ground with her head ripped off. And just above the corpse, he scrawled an arrow pointing down in her blood with the inscription, For Nosy Rosie. Her voice was now hard as diamonds. Now, no one's called me Nosy Rosie since I got teased on the playground at his age, and I don't think he ever heard anyone call me by my first name. He shouldn't have even begun to be able to guess at that name. But he had, and as soon as I walked in, he started laughing. And, and I still swear to this years after it happened, it sounded exactly like the laughter of kids used to bully me when I was his age, and something snapped when I heard him. I ran out of that cell, filed my resignation, and, well, you know the rest. Her face was a mask of cold fury, hurt and rage now. I reached an arm up out of reflexive empathy, but she swatted away before I could get very far and gave me a look that said very clearly that no matter how much it hurt to remember this, she still had her pride and wasn't going to suffer the pity of a subordinate. I settled for trying to give her a look that was both sympathetic and respectful. Then I heard Dr. A's voice from behind her. So, Parker, you still think you can cure the little bastard? He asked. Care to suggest a diagnosis for someone who was able to just instantly pull an old schoolyard talent out of thin air to mock a woman whose vulnerable spots he'd been able to reach as if by magic? Well, heading myself for it, I shook my head helplessly. I didn't know, I said. I didn't... Uh, I, I don't know. Of course you don't, said Dr. A., a bitter and cruel note of satisfaction in his voice. You have no idea what's wrong with him. What's more, you've brought it into all the mythology surrounding him because you're young. You're impressionable. You don't know any better. That's why you're not his doctor. 
But don't worry. I am his doctor, and I'm almost certain that I do know better. Thanks for joining me tonight for my performance of Chapters 4 through 6 of author Jasper DeWitt's series, The Patient That Nearly Drove Me Out of Medicine. Join me again next week when we continue telling the story with a performance of its final three chapters and its thrilling conclusion. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted, and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? ha <laughs> ha